Bees have been in the news in recent times. Justin Hill talks to us about bees, his company, surviving the pandemic, and the future. Learn about Eastaboga Bee Company. It's on tip of the tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Justin Hill. He is the owner of the Eastaboga Bee Company. So welcome. Welcome, Justin. Oh, thank you for having me, Liz. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey to being where you are today? <laughs> well, being a multi-generational farmer, I, my family historically have been horse and mule and cattle people. And, um, and it looked like I was going to kind of follow in those footsteps also. But uh, there was just this little nag by these little honeybees that kept drawing me in. <laughs> and, you know, what was... Uh, it sounds so cliche, but what once was a hobby now is what I do for a living. So no twists and turns along the way before you said, oh, I'm going to embrace the family business? No, no, not really. Okay. Just, okay. Um, just a bunch of bad decisions. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about the family farm growing up. What was it like? A uh, pretty typical childhood, you know. What children are on the farm is cheap labor. So <laughs> you learn quick about chores. I laugh and tell everybody at four o'clock, no matter where I'm at, I'm just looking around for a feed bucket <laughs> to start feeding. <laughs> I guess that's kind of good. You don't have to really feed bees in quite that same way. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> okay, so tell me about the bees and how you got interested in bees. You know, uh, always loved honey. And it, and it become such a expensive thing to eat. I was like, why don't you just raise it, Justin? <laughs> and so that's how the hobby got started. And then, of course, we could produce more than we could eat. And mm-hmm. I just started selling it to pay for the habit. And then <laughs> it kept growing. Like, oh, okay. So were you self-taught? Did you just decide? No, uh, you know, I think only a fool self-taught. But I had a lot of people to help me along the way. I had a couple mentors. One of them has since passed on, but uh, a lot of help along the way and still have, still get a lot of help from a lot of smart people. (laughs) Okay. So tell me, tell me about your relationship with the bees. What do you take away from that? I mean, besides honey, um, Mm -hmm. what, what is it about the bees that fascinates you? Just the democracy of the whole hive and the way they go about doing things. I know a lot of people think that a queen bee is a the ruler of the hive but when in fact if all those worker bees think that she's not doing a good enough job they will kick her out (laughs) so it's it really is neat to watch them so what is the queen bee's job how can they decide whether it's a good she's doing a good job well if they think she's not laying enough eggs or maybe if there's something wrong with her pheromones or maybe she got injured in transit you know if it's a queen that you ordered from someone Uh uh-huh Lord, I don't know how they can sniff it out, but they do. 
Okay. And so tell me about the workings of the hive. How does it work? Uh, so, you know, there's a couple different casts. You have the male bee, which is called a drone. His whole occupation is just for reproductive purposes. He really serves no purpose. As a matter of fact, as it gets on into later fall, the, the female, the worker bees, the infertile worker bees, they will kick them out uh-huh. because they don't need them anymore. <laughs> and so, all they do is eat, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Seems like those bees have got it figured out. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> We know. You aren't the first. You aren't the first person that has said that. You know? yeah. 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 And then, like the worker bees are also all females, but they are infertile, so they cannot lay eggs. Are they? If they can't, they so they're the ones that are really the pollinators. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are the ones you'll see. Uh, you may see a male bee somewhere close to a hive, but you most likely probably, you know, in your dandelion patch in your front yard this time of year. Those are the worker bees and they have different jobs throughout their lifespan. So when they're first born, they pretty much stay in the hive, you know, cleaning up, nursing, feeding the other bees. And then as they progress, they start taking flights and then towards the end of their life, excuse me, towards the end of their life, they'll be guard bees. Okay. Okay. And so how is a queen made then? If all of these worker bees are infertile. Well, the, it, it'll be the same egg, but it's the royal jelly that they feed it. You know, without getting too humongously technical, they feed it a lot more royal jelly and it's ovaries develop. Okay. Where the, where the worker bees doesn't have developed ovaries. And, she and can't so breed. if something happens to the queen, mm-hmm. do, they, do the bees actually plant it so that there's another queen that's already developed if there's a egg or larva that's of the right age they can raise one if not they'll just go queenless and eventually die out because the bees die and there's nothing to replace them okay oh so have you experienced the kind of hive collapse that we read about all over the world some of what you read about is a little romanticized Uh, i've never had one just completely just boom it's there one day and then it's not there's generally a reason uh-huh. most of the time it's the varroa mite i did have some get stole one time so i don't know if that qualifies probably <laughs> not because they're still around they're yeah. just not around you <laughs> they, they were there one day and then the next day they weren't <laughs> but uh yeah the varroa mite the real varroa destructor it's uh it causes a lot of nasty nasty things to happen to them and in most most of what people claim is colony collapse is most likely just a disease that's gone unnoticed. So do you put your, your hives out for pollen as sort of to assist in pollination the way people do say in California? No, not, not to that level. We do, I mean, there is some watermelon and cantaloupe farmers that we deal with. Uh, but those are the only ones. The rest of them are in pretty stable areas around cattle fields. And we so on, how often do you check them? Are they checked daily or? Not, not daily. It depends on the time of year. Obviously, right now, it's, it's pretty cold here. I, I just looked at temperature. It's still 36 degrees. So they're still in a cluster. But uh, during the summertime, every two weeks, we'll, we'll put eyes inside the hive. And about every week, I'll at least ride by even this time of year and just see what's going on. Just 
just to check and see if anything, everything looks normal. And so have you figured out the flavor profile of the honey that's being produced? Uh, I've, had, I've had a lot of chefs give me some flavor profiles. My, okay. my, my, palate, is, my palate is not that talented. <laughs> Very floral. It depends on the time of year. You get different notes. Anise has been one that's been very popular in the fall flavors. Uh, yeah, it just really depends on the time of year. And, and different bee yards do have different tastes. And so, do you blend it so that it try so that you try to have a, a kind of consistent flavor, or is it just kind of whatever there is that's the way? I, to do it? I try to leave it just the way it is for two reasons. One, they get that taste from that bee yard. Uh -huh. And two, and God forbid, if something ever goes wrong, I can trace it back to one place, one time, you know, one area. Like I can try to figure out what, where that particular yeah. batch came from. Yeah, where yeah. it went, what went wrong. <laughs> right, right. And so how much, how many hives do you have and how much honey are you producing? Uh, we're around, it, you know, it fluctuates, but, you know, we're pretty steady around five and six hundred hives. We're, we're kind of a small mom and pop operation, but, and we roughly produce on average about 15 tons per year. And where does that put you in the overall bee production? Oh uh, yeah, I'm, I'm at the very bottom. <laughs> like <laughs> like th those guys that's going out in California and doing almonds, uh, you know, those guys run tens of thousands of semi 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 trailer loads of it it's, right right and it's something have, to behold if you've never seen it i've only seen it in um in films and things like documentaries about it i've never actually gone out to see it uh give, give or take a semi can haul about 200 hives mm -hmm. and those things will be lined up it just i mean it's just bc <laughs> it's nuts wow. but i've heard also that there's a lot of theft um of the hives in California, mm -hmm. uh, which would be awful to think about that you have to guard your hives. Um, yeah, there's some sorry people out there. Yeah. And I'm and sure any of those beekeepers would be happy to give them a hundred bucks or buy a meal for them or, yeah. you know. Yeah. That's the sad part. We're pretty good people. You don't have to steal from us. We'll probably give it to you. So do you do anything with the wax? Yeah, we do. We make, uh, leather creams lip balms candles you know, stuff like that wood polishes and so do you have that being manufactured at your facility mm -hmm. we do we do yeah we blend oils and all that right there okay okay so what what are your plans what what's the next thing like how long have you been doing this and how how do you see yourself either growing or changing um and why well, this is a, this has been a very, last two years have been very different than years past, okay. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. But we were, we were on track to really scale up when COVID started hitting. The restaurants in the state of Alabama and the surrounding areas were really starting to boom and blow up. And this whole farm, you know, I, I hate to use the word farm to table, but, you know, the chefs are trying to get the best locally purveyed sure products they could get uh, and i think really right now we've all learned that the more local you are 
the less you're dealing with supply chain issues and all mm-hmm. of that, which have oh my God. really caused all kinds of problems with people. Yeah. Trying to find bottles and lids have been just the source of agony. <laughs> for, for two, yeah, it still kind of is. Not as, not as bad, but last year it was tough. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, let's say that you have had to do some pivots because of COVID. Mm-hmm. So what have you had to do? We went more to the bottle, to the consumer end of it uh-huh. and just individual bottles, which they were really looking for last year because honey, you know, honey helps you when you have colds and mm-hmm. you know, make toddies and stuff. So they were looking for it really heavy last year. So that helped to kind of uh-huh. even the scales just a little bit to, because so- a lot, a lot of the restaurants were just either closed or doing a minimalist curbside thing i say last year in 2020 so when you went retail were you doing that online or were you doing that at at actual facilities online we got hooked up with a couple hardware companies that helped us out a handful of local grocery chains Mm -hmm. just really went that route it it's more labor intensive and it on the profit end it kind of just evens out when you're just because there's more labor in bottling honey than there would be in big big, big coats big, that you just drop big. off to right. one person. Right, of course. So what is the difference in quantity? Say um, a 60 to 100 top restaurant, how mm. much would they normally buy in a week or a month? How many uh, gallons? Well, well, you know, it depends on their menu, really. Uh, there's, there's a little restaurant in Birmingham that, that does ACA bowls. I think I pronounced that right. <laughs> but uh, they do a bunch of that, include a lot of our honey. They'll go through about 48 pounds a week. That's not very typical. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of them, depending on their dessert menus, uh, you know, different variables, they'll go through about 12 to 24. Are, they mostly, restaurant. are they mostly using honey and desserts they're not using a lot of desserts you'll see it desserts uh it'll show up a lot in focaccia breads pizza doughs Mm -hmm. the hot honey sauce going on top of pizza has been real popular of late around Mm -hmm. here you'll see it a lot in vinaigrettes just just some everyday things like that right 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 so do you do you see yourself sort of going back to the restaurant supplying um, business when things, I want to say, go back to normal, but you know what I mean? I yeah. don't know when that's going to well, happen. Are you well, going to leave, are you going to leave your uh, retail behind? Or are you going to keep that as well as do the other now that you've kind of established retail? We haven't had to say no to anyone just yet. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and thankfully I felt so bad for those guys. They were going through, I know just enormous pains in the restaurant. You're talking industry. about the restaurants. Oh, yeah. 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 So, I mean, I felt it with them in a little bit of a way because my industry was just a little bit different. Whereas uh, somebody that grew vegetables for restaurants, they just didn't plant that much right, right. going into summer and fall. I still had to get a crop in, or I didn't have anything to sell them next year. Right. Or in the fall. So I was just. You have animals. I mean, it's not the same thing as a plant. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, it was crazy. And they, they're still not where they were pre-COVID, most of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So it, that's not been a decision I've had to make just yet. Do you see, um, do you see progress though in the restaurant industry oh, in, yeah. in Alabama? I do. I do. And, uh, the new variant coming out, uh, week, you know, last what a month uh -huh. since Omicron, uh, I, I've seen it dip just a little bit, but that could also just be January. January is historically a yeah. little slow for them. Right. right, right. It's right after all the celebrations yeah. of, uh, the holiday season and sort of people stop going out because yeah i'm still full <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we're going to the gym instead right exactly oh that's the new new year's resolutions come in and say oh well eat at home and eat carrot sticks right, right, right. well you can put honey on carrot sticks that's true you can <laughs> <laughs> so Anything new on the horizon? Any new things that you are planning? Even if it's not like tomorrow, do, uh, you have to be planning for change, whether it's sure. just more hives or yeah. more products or what? Uh, me as a honeybee farmer, I'm not too different than any other farmer. We're six months. We're already planning for fall mm -hmm. right now. So what we're doing now was planned, planned out last year. Uh-huh. So yeah, we'd always like to expand. Uh, we also raise queen bees to sell to other beekeepers and to use ourselves. So I'll, that's always a big passion project of mine. You so know, you're actually honey bee raising, genetics. You're you're actually raising um, queens. Yes, ma'am. And so, how does one do that? Uh, it, there's there's a couple different ways. Uh, Garrett Dobbs, right up the road from you in Baton Rouge, is one of the greatest artificial inseminators he's he helped teach me a lot of stuff super super smart guy and has a great line of queen bees uh -huh. that they raise and experiment with there Louisiana so, LSU so you're saying that you really like bee genetics um what is there about bee genetics that's um so fascinating well it's you know growing up in cattle and horses that historically to see your line of what you you know, you, the line that you produce to mm -hmm. see it come multi-generational, that takes a quarter century to really see anything. Mm -hmm. And with honeybees, you could almost do, you know, four generations of where you started in one year mm -hmm. very easily. Hey. And that's so interesting to me, just to plug you, in new genetics. <laughs> new genetics, yeah. <laughs> and so by new genetics, are you actually just doing uh, traditional Mendelian genetics? Or are you um, doing? We, I do that. I also do some artificial insemination. We got some male sperm from, uh, I, I cannot pronounce, I'm not even going to try to attempt to pronounce the region of Italy. So it'd be an old world type B. Uh huh. Because there was just some stuff that you was reading about that maybe there was some lack of a better term, inbreeding going on with some of the genetics. Mm -hmm. And through Washington State University, we got to try some, use some of that. And it's, those queens were pretty successful here in the South for me. Well, I would imagine that you maybe, are you on a similar latitude to the place where the, the, uh, they, the were, they were a little, little, a little bit north of us. So maybe like a Illinois or Kentucky-ish. Oh, okay. So they, they would have been like a little bit more north, I think, where they got the, okay. the bees okay. from. I used to work in a uh, fruit fly lab. It was a genetics lab. So wow. um, 
So you kind of get it. (laughs) I do. I do. And their lifespan is so short. Uh, The flies are even shorter than bees. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we would get multiple generations per year. And then what we were measuring were colors, uh, the body color, eye color of the flies. Mm -hmm. And so we had to look at the flies because fruit flies are so tiny. We had to look at them under some kind of magnifier and then we would hit them with ether and it doesn't take much ether to knock them out, even though we were all smelling ether all day long. <laughs> uh, you left work feeling good. Right. <laughs> or at least sleepy. <laughs> yeah. And so we would divide up and co- the color of the eyes and and count the number of flies that we had been produced and everything and uh so it was it was mendelian but it was also uh we were we were using um uh not a mass spectrometer um a electron microscope to look at the, the genes of the fruit flies. And it was a long time ago. So it was before gene mapping or anything like that. This was like pre-gene mapping where they were actually still trying to identify, oh, that's a gene, oh, that's a this. Yeah. And, um, but it was, it was really interesting. And so I totally know what you're talking about and keeping all those crazy records of generations <laughs> and all of that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, I, I'm... I know what you're talking about. Yeah. But typically how, how I'll do it, I'll take, you know, a, a pole line from Garrett or whoever, and that'll kind of, that'll be my breeder queen. And I'll raise young queens from it and then let them breed with the males in my area. Ah, uh, yeah. So, okay. so hopefully I'll get a gene that's already been pretty established here, but also. Have some new blood, so to speak, right. at the same right. time. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that makes that makes sense. And it probably is really good for keeping everything healthy um, mm-hmm. and not so, as you say, inbred. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if that's a huge problem with insects, but it, it would be if you try to do dogs or horses or cows or anything like that. Well, the way that I we mean, do it. I mean, I, I think you're right. It probably isn't that big of a deal, but you have a a kind of an artificial situation where you have many, many more bees together in a smaller area Mm -hmm. than what happened in nature. Right. So maybe, maybe it does matter a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's fascinating. Okay. So um, new, as I keep asking you any new products, are you, you know, doing whipped honey or doing any kind of things like that we already do a whipped and creamed honey and we already do a little hot honey there is i have been fooling around with a chocolate honey that seems to be like the latest thing well there's a whole there's a whole company in mississippi that does chocolate honey Mm -hmm. uh yeah they have a big hive um a a big hive clump complex in in sort of southern mississippi mississippi is a huge beekeeping state yeah yeah and so what do you think about chocolate honey uh it's not for me Uh Uh Uh, i I, I would prefer it just to be honey Uh uh-huh but it yeah it's good on ice cream for sure yeah one of the things i love to do with honey is to to heat it uh, with 
things like, and you, you mentioned anise, anise are fennel seeds. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I, I really think that that gives a, a really great flavor to like breads and uh, uh, that I, it's one of my, my real favorites. And I've started playing with caraway seeds the same way with honey. Because I think that is an interesting combination too. It's not quite as naturally sweet as fennel or anise, mm-hmm. but caraway has a, a different kind of kick to it, and sometimes it goes well with with honey. I, I couldn't do it and sell it, but one of our one of the chefs we sell honey to, they'll add just a little bit of water to the honey, and start a very light fermentation because of the honey, the water in it. Uh-huh. And they'll just kind of gas it for a couple of days and put it on a bread spread. And that little bit of fermentation adds, uh, it's crazy. Ooh. The, the florals that that brings out. Yeah, that sounds like a really wonderful idea. Still mm-hmm. thick enough to be honey, right. not, not diluted to the point where you could drink it kind of thing. Yeah, so, mm-hmm. so honey, the reason honey is measured in weight is because it has roughly when the bees cap it, it'll have roughly 18% water content still in it. Mm-hmm. And anything over 18%, you have the potential of fermentation. Mm-hmm. So it don't take a whole lot, just, you know. Yeah, but everything wants to ferment. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what they say about wine. It's just vinegar waiting to happen. <laughs> Speaking of, I have been doing the honey wine vinegar, which Ooh. is fun. Yeah, that sounds really good. Have you tried uh, doing some version of a uh, kombucha or whatever? Yeah, the, I think they call that a, I'm, it's, it's not called jade, but it's something like that. Jude, maybe I'm not when you sure. use honey, I think yeah. you use a green tea instead of a black tea also. Yeah. So um, when I, I was in Russia and at one point I, I was at one of those food stalls, you know, food halls. And when they kept hearing me and some of the other people that I was with speaking English, they would like grab us and say, you have to try this because our, you, you, know, you don't have anything like this. And um, they had some kind of a mead-ish drink that they had made. They had one thing that they call, I think it's called Clark or something like that, which is... Um, fermented pumpernickel bread that is it's 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 a drink and uh they take all this leftover bread that of course is very highly flavored because it's pumpernickel but it's it's stale so you can't do anything with it so they soak it in water and they ferment it and then it's kind of bubbly it's a very gentle fermentation like three or four days and um and you drink it and it's really good well they do the (laughs) same sort of thing making mead but they've got cinnamon sticks in it and other kinds of uh flavorings and obviously water and honey Mm -hmm. and they let that go a little harder (laughs) (laughs) so is that more of a cider ish type thing well it's it's more like a hard cider but it's made of honey. There's no apple juice or yeah. juice in it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's also really, really delicious and very drinkable in a really dangerous way. 
say it's a lot of fun until it's not. Exactly. <laughs> Fortunately, you know, we were only given little bits to taste because sure. we were tasting so much, you know, it was and, and some of the stuff we, but the whole point of what I'm saying is fermentation was everywhere. Um, yeah. We had all kinds of fermented vegetables that were being preserved. So you had mm -hmm. preserved pickles like tomato pickles and eggplant pickles and zucchini pickles and all these things that they would then serve all winter because they lived in a place where there was such a short growing season that you just grew as much as you could. And then in order to have something that was vegetable for the rest of the year, besides like potatoes or turnips or some kind of, um, you know, tuber or, or root vegetable, right. they, they fermented everything. And so they weren't making uh, vinegar pickles. They were making fermented pickles, sauerkraut, all that kind of stuff. And then they ferment their sausages. And I mean, it's just, everything was fermented. It was amazing. Uh, and they had so much control over it because they did it all the time. And you couldn't ferment this in the same place with that because the kinds of spores, bacteria yeah. that were involved were not compatible. And it was, it was very fascinating. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So ferment your honey, if you can, I, <laughs> I think of that as a really interesting, uh, an interesting flavor because really we think of pickles as so sour and everything, but these fermented pickles mm -mm. are not nearly as uh, pungent as uh, something like a dill pickle, you know. And a lot more crispy, I'm sure. Totally, yes. Yeah. Totally crispy, yeah. And you can understand why, why. And then look at cheese. Cheese is fermented. Right. You know? Everything is fermented. Everything good, right? Even, even <laughs> butter, fermented butter is better than fresh butter, yeah. I think. Anyway, yeah. it has more complex flavor. Um, so I'm, I'm a big fan of fermentation. I, don't I couldn't do, tell. I, <laughs> I don't do it too much because it's so, it's so hard to do it in one kitchen because right. everything can mess up something else, you know, mm -hmm. so I'm not so into it that I have my own laboratory or anything. But I would want, I want to be, but around our farm it's well, i'll ferment some pickles and sauerkraut and do some uh -huh. stuff like that with live uh -huh. cultures but. yeah and so do you um do you use the yeast in the air or do you do some kind of inoculation with my pickles just wild yeast wild. from there yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's um uh, I think that's uh, the always the the danger here where we are because it's so damp that yeah. uh, we have the worst luck with uh, fermentation because it just wants to rot. <laughs> <laughs> Skip the step. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you have to be so sterile and it's much safer, not safer in terms of health, but safer in terms of success to mm -hmm. inoculate because as opposed to using what's in the air because um, everything wants to rot. <laughs> but yeah. anyway, so what, what, what should we all take away from our conversation today? What can you tell us about Istaboga Bee Company that we all just need to know? And tell us the website, tell us all of that. 
First and foremost, please, if you want to help bees, go help somebody who has committed their life's work to raising them. You it don't. It's a instead of going to Starbucks that morning, give somebody seven dollars for a jar of honey because that'll keep him going just a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You could buy mine. I'd appreciate it, but somebody help somebody out. And also another good way to do it is there's wildflower seed packs, but be careful who you buy them from because a lot of those flowers that they have in there could, could be invasive species. So, you know, kind of be mindful of that where you get those packs from. But there are lots of native plant societies in every location mm-hmm. that, yes, that are real careful about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I see some wildflower packs and I'm like, Ooh, well, yeah. I don't get out in your community. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And so what's your website? Uh, Eastabogabee.com. And spell Eastaboga for us. E-A-S-T-A-B-O-G-A. Okay. Okay. And there won't be another one. So uh, nobody's, no, we're the, <laughs> <laughs> nobody's brave enough to live in this huge metropolis. Of East <laughs> so Justin, thank you very much for this conversation today. It was really fun. No, thank you, Liz. And, and I have to be honest, uh, I didn't get to meet you when we were there in July, but what a beautiful museum. It, oh. it, was, an, it was an amazing time. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Next time you're in New Orleans, we will have to meet. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.